Welcome to this message from Port Life Church. Our goal is to bring life to the Port community and beyond. And our hope is that this message will inspire and encourage you today. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be here with you this morning. As you can see, uh, I am completing our uh, series that we've been going through called The Rise and Fall of the King uh, in week one. Who's enjoyed the series? Who's been here for it? Yeah, watched online a little bit as well. Um, and hello to our online people, by the way. I always forget to do that, so hello. Uh, but week one of the series, uh, we looked at David the boy, and that was uh, Pastor Pete Rainbow uh, spoke on that. And that was a, we actually been picking on me in staff meetings because during that message, I audibly said, Wow during the sermon because of how great that message was. So please go and have a look. And in week two, Pastor Josh uh, talked on David the King and had some amazing application points there. So I'd encourage you to go and have a look at those messages if you haven't already. But this week, uh, I'm covering the time or I've decided to cover the time in between when David was a boy and when he became the king, which is when he was a man, someone who had Issues, problems, things going on in his world just the same as any other normal, perhaps, person might. And uh, to start with today, I just want to bring this up. Has anyone ever seen this movie? I'm not recommending it because it's terrible in every single way possible. It's not a good movie at all. I think I saw it a little while ago. Um, it's, the movie actually sucks. But if you've seen it, you'll, you'll already know that. Uh, but the time in between David's uh, boyhood and when he became king was really marred by a horrible boss, a really horrible boss. I wonder if you've ever had a horrible boss before. I'm not going to get you to put your hand up, but I'm just going to scan around the room. Just give me a little nod like, yeah, I've, I've got a horrible boss. Um, this week, I actually asked on social media uh, for some horrible boss stories. Um, and I did get a lot of responses. I won't share them all today, but there are a few I wanted to share. One was that uh, someone said, the boss spread a rumour I was pregnant because I got married young. So the boss just went around saying, oh, she must be prego. And she wasn't. She was just a Christian. And then uh, another boss, on my first night, this, this person said, on my first night in the job at a pizza place, my boss told me about his criminal history and went out of his way to find his paper record to prove that he actually was a criminal. He told me he'd robbed banks and killed people. He also told me I should be sleeping around with lots of people. Charming man, charming. And then finally, uh, someone also said, and this one I'm not so sure about because I'm not sure if this was a horrible boss situation. They said, my boss would watch me on the camera eat, eat food from the store, which they didn't clarify whether they were meant to be eating food from the store. So I'm actually thinking that might have been more horrible employee. Um, but potentially if they were meant to be eating food from the store and the boss was watching and being creepy, sure. But I think the employee was dodgy on that part. But I'm sure that if we asked around for long enough, each and every single one of us maybe might have some kind of horrible or bad boss story at some point in your working experience. And those ones that I've shared today already, yeah, they might be bad, but David's experience with his horrible boss was a lot, 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 lot worse, a lot worse. And in this time where he was struggling with this horrible boss, uh, it really kind of brings up or unpacks the answer for us of what attitude does God want us to have towards difficult people? What kind of attitude, how does God want me to approach difficult people and respond to difficult people in my life and in my world? Not just bosses, uh, but anyone or everyone. 
David's boss was King Saul. You may have already heard this throughout the series that Saul was the king at the time and and Saul was Israel's first king. He was chosen uh, not just by the people but actually by God to be the very first king and he started off really, really well. But at a pivotal moment, uh, he was disobedient to God intentionally and this kind of led to God kind of turning away from Saul and instead asking Samuel the prophet to choose a new king, a king that would be after God's own heart, which Josh spoke about last week. And so the prophet Samuel anoints a young boy, or anoints just means kind of marks or chooses uh, David, this young boy, as king, uh, when, as I said, he was just very young. But David wouldn't actually go on to be king for another 15 to 20 years, even though he'd been kind of marked as the future king. And as a teen, And as Pete spoke about in week one, David kills Goliath, perhaps the most famous story in Scripture that we're aware of. And this is a huge turning point in David's life because it makes David famous and loved throughout the whole land of Israel, which was the kingdom that he was a part of. But it also leads to something else. It leads to Saul bringing David into the kingdom. So it's not just that David goes and and slays Goliath and everyone's like, oh, that was great, let's move on. But Saul actually brings David into the kingdom and gives him uh, the reward, tax-free status, all kinds of things. But he becomes a part of it. He's no longer just a shepherd boy, but becomes a part of the kingdom, an active part. And and Saul uh, puts him in the army and he begins to thrive more and more and more. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, the word says, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This is a guy who hadn't been in the army before getting rid of Goliath, uh, but God's favour was on him. And it says, This pleased all the troops that David was put in high rank in the army and Saul's officers as well. But the issue became for Saul that David's success and people's love for him makes Saul extremely envious of David. He begins to feel threatened by David. You know how that can happen sometimes? People around us, we might feel threatened by them when they're beginning to succeed at things or whatever. And Saul begins to think, oh, maybe if David gets popular enough, he might steal the kingdom away from me. I don't know what's going to happen. And this turns Saul, this this obsession with David turns Saul into a horrible boss. To start with, he, thanks for the laugh, hon. That's good. My wife always laughs at little parts of my sermon that no one else will, so it's good. It's good having her in the front row for the support. But sometimes afterwards she'll also say, yeah, that message was no good, hun. So <laughs> it's, kind of, it's kind of both sides. Um, so Saul turns into a horrible boss because of his, his envy uh, for David. And he starts by just randomly throwing spears at David. David is at work one day doing his job, playing the lyre, which was some form of stringed instrument. He's playing that for Saul and singing for Saul. And Saul just gets so stirred up at David's presence there that he hurls two spears at David whilst David is working. And another friend of mine sent through a story of their horrible boss. He said that when he was 14 or 15, my friend said that he was at, uh, working at KFC and on one of his first days in the job, he dropped a piece of chicken. Someone just gasped. Oh no, not the chicken. He dropped a piece of chicken and the boss said, if you do that again, I'm going to kill you. 14, 15-year-old. And the guy's like, chill, man. It's just a piece of chicken. And the boss said, no, no, no. If you do that again, I'm going to kill you. Now, the boss was like later on played it off as a joke. But in David's case, the boss was not joking. And, the da- and Saul didn't even actually warn David, hey, I'm going to kill you if you do anything ever again. Saul just randomly decided, I want to kill David. 
and just started trying to do it. So he's hurling spears at David. Then later on, he forcefully avoids David by sending him into war. He goes, just get this guy out of here, send him into battle. And he keeps doing this in the hope that David will eventually die in battle. He keeps sending David into battle, into battle, into battle. Hopefully David will eventually be struck down. Uh, But David keeps being successful. Then over time, Saul agrees to marry his daughter, Michal, to uh, David, uh, for her to become David's wife. But David is, is not a hugely wealthy man at this point, can't pay the dowry for Michal that he needed to pay to Saul. And so Saul says, that's okay. All you need to do, these things are implied, but that's why they're implied, because that's what was happening. He says, all you need to do is go and kill 200 Philistines. Philistines were the big baddies at the time. All you need to do is go and kill 200 of them and then you can marry her. And he did that not because that meant anything to him, but simply because he hoped that in David doing that, that David would be killed. That David would go out in in the hope of getting this dowry and that he would be killed. But again, David is successful. So then Saul sends his son, David's best friend, Jonathan, to kill David in 1 Samuel 19 verse 1. But Jonathan says, Dad, I'm not going to do that. He goes to David and goes, what's going on? He goes back to Saul and says, no, I can't do this. You can't keep going after David. He's done nothing wrong. He's only ever done the right thing by you time and time and time again. And Saul sees reason briefly and he accepts David back. He says, okay, you're right, Jonathan. I'm going to accept David back into my kingdom only to then go on to plot to kill him again and again (laughs) and again and Again, he just keeps doing it. He just loves it. He's all about the plotting to kill. And so in 1 Samuel 18, 29, it kind of sums this up. It says, Saul remained David's enemy for the rest of his life. Now, I wish the story kind of ended there, but it actually goes on and gets even worse. David then realises this is an untenable situation. I can't stay here. I can't stay here whilst every single day another spear might be thrown at me, someone might be sent to kill me. Saul is clearly after me and wants to get me. And so David ends up fleeing the kingdom completely and and he's homeless and he's going around and he's uh, sleeping in caves and and at random people's houses. He stays with the prophet Samuel for a little while. There's all kinds of things going on, but he has to flee. And even as he's fleeing, Saul just keeps coming after him. So he keeps fleeing. Uh, But Saul has uh, three kind of hot pursuits of David, three occasions where he takes a big army to go after David. The first time... It's in 1 Samuel 23 to 20, uh, sorry, 1 Samuel 23, 26 to 28. And that pursuit is called off because a war breaks out in Israel. The Philistines come and they're, they're like attacking Israel and, and David isn't there to protect them. And so Saul has to go back and go and fight. So he calls off his pursuit of David. The second time, David actually ends up sparing Saul's life despite his friend's advice. Saul goes after David with a whole bunch of men again. And along the way, they're getting closer and closer to finding David. But at one point, Saul's like, and this is legit, Saul's like, I need to stop for a toilet break. And so Saul goes into a cave. It just so happens that David is in the same cave with all his men, right? And so David and his men are hiding out there. Saul's going to the toilet and and, um, David's men are saying to David, mate, this is your opportunity, if ever you're going to get this guy back, it's now. Just go and stab him in the back, cut off his head, do whatever you got to do. And David says, no, nah, I'm not going to do it. Even though this is the perfect opportunity for me to get this guy back to take revenge, I'm not going to go after him. So instead, he cuts off a bit of Saul's robe without Saul knowing. And as Saul leaves the cave, David comes out and says, hey, Saul, look, 
I had this opportunity to kill you. I cut off this bit of your robe, which he actually feels super bad about as well. He feels really emotional about the fact that he even did that. And he goes out and says, I had this opportunity to kill you. I had this opportunity to get back at you, and yet I chose not to. Despite all of what you've done to me, I had this opportunity to go back at you and to really get rid of you once and for all and to take up my mantle as king. I'd already been anointed as a boy, and yet I didn't. Saul kind of hears this and he goes, you know what, David, you're right. I'm wrong. God is with you. He's not with me. And so Saul leaves, decides I'm going to call off my pursuit of David. and let We'll just go our separate ways. Sounds good, right? But then two chapters later, old mate Saul's back at it. Saul takes 3,000 troops this time to go and get David for no apparent reason. Right? There's nothing new that's kind of stirred Saul up. It's just he's obviously just sitting around on his throne. And I don't know if you've ever heard the term living rent free in someone's head, but that's pretty much what's happening with Saul and David. Saul is sitting there and David's living rent free in Saul's head. He's just constantly just mulling over, oh, David. As long as David's alive, his kingdom is under threat. As long as David's alive, you know, potentially David's going to come in and swoop in and take the favour of the people, whatever. He just wants to eradicate the whole earth of David. And so this third pursuit of David, Saul takes 3,000 troops. And as they're coming closer and closer to where David is, little do they know David's kind of watching them from afar and going, okay, they're coming after me. But David's pretty smart militarily and, and strategically. And so he sees where they are and what they're doing. And they're obviously a pretty big group. And so at night, During this pursuit, Saul and his army decide to camp and go to sleep on the side of a hill. And the word tells us that God, really importantly, tells us that God puts Saul and his army into a deep sleep. God puts Saul and the army into a deep sleep. God's setting something up to happen. But then we read 1 Samuel 26 verses 5 to 9. I wanted to read this out to you because it's really important. It says, David slipped over to Saul's camp one night to look around, that night that God had put them into a deep sleep. Saul and Abner, son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, were sleeping inside a ring formed by the slumbering warriors. Who will volunteer to go in there with me? David asked Ahimelech and Abishai. I'll go with you, Abishai replied. So David and Abishai went right into Saul's camp and found Saul asleep with his spear stuck in the ground beside his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying asleep around him. God has surely handed your enemy over to you this time, Abishai whispered to David. Surely God wants you to kill him. Let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of my spear. I won't need to strike twice. Verse 9, David says, No, don't kill him. For who can remain innocent after attacking the Lord's anointed one? Who can remain innocent after attacking the Lord's anointed one? And so David actually takes the spear and he takes a water jug that's next to, David, uh, next to Saul's head. They go to a safe distance and they call out to the campsite. Wake up, wake up, Saul. Wake up, Abner. Look, I have the spear that was right next to your head. Look, I've got the water jug that was also right next to you. Wake up. And David states how he had once again had the chance to kill Saul once and for all, that the Lord had put them into a deep sleep, that everything seemed to be pointing towards, kill this guy, take up your mantle. And yet he didn't. 
And he kind of goes on this, this big kind of rant about the fact that, you know, God will judge between you and me whether I've done the right thing or not. And then Saul's response in 1 Samuel 26, 21, I think is telling and is what I want to focus on. It says, Then Saul confessed, David, I have sinned. Come back home, my son, and I will no longer try to harm you. For you valued my life today. A different translation says, For you considered my life precious today. I have been a fool and very wrong. And what I want to highlight this morning, church, just quickly, is that David treated Saul as valuable, as precious. I don't know if I would have done that in David's situation. And there's a word for this idea of valuing someone and treating them as precious in in our culture, which isn't really talked about very much. We don't, especially in Aussie culture. And that word is honour. Honour in a biblical sense is to treat something as valuable, precious, of high regard or prized. The question is, how could David value Saul given this circumstance? Saul was hell-bent on destroying David. How the heck could David honour, could he value, could he consider Saul's life precious given this circumstance? Well, the reason is because he chose to view Saul through a God lens, not a human lens. See, through a human lens, you go, that guy needs to die. He's the antagonist of this story. He's the, he's the guy on all the movies where we're kind of rooting for to die, right? Please, someone kill him. But David saw Saul through a God lens, not a human lens. He identified Saul as the Lord's anointed rather than scumbag Saul. And the interesting thing is that Saul actually wasn't the Lord's anointed. David was the Lord's anointed. So David was actually looking at Saul for what he was at his absolute best in God's eyes and seeing Saul through that lens rather than a lens of what Saul is doing to me, what he's done to me, the the awfulness he's created for my life. I've lost all my friends. I've lost my place in the kingdom. I've lost my income. I've lost everything because of this guy. But he's saying, no, who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be called innocent? He saw Saul through a God lens. He honoured Saul. And this call to honour wasn't just for David. And it isn't just an Old Testament concept. It's actually a concept that the New Testament writers command us to get a grasp of as well. Peter, who was one of the leaders of the early church in the first century AD, wrote to the church and he said, honour everyone. It's not a very complicated Bible verse, is it? (laughs) Honour everyone. So as followers of Jesus, when we're dealing with difficult people, we need to look at them through a God lens. See them through that God lens rather than a human lens. And I know that Saul is an over-the-top over example of a difficult person, by the way. I can see he's a tyrant. We don't often deal with tyrants in our daily lives. He was a tyrant. But a difficult person in our lives can really be anyone, big or small. It can be co-workers, family, bosses, politicians, friends, acquaintances, you name it. There are so many people in our lives that potentially can become difficult people for us in situationally or long-term. People that rub us up the wrong way, people we struggle with continually, people that just try as we might, I just can't bring myself to really like that person. I just... No one else has those. (laughs) Just me, apparently. But here's how we're meant to see them. Here's how we see them through the God lens or what I would say the Jesus lens 
Peter also wrote to the early church saying this, which I think is just a beautiful, beautiful passage. He says, God paid a ransom to save you. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, mere gold or silver. Give me some gold or silver. But Peter's saying, no, that's, that's nothing. It wasn't paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was paid for with the precious blood of Christ, the precious blood of Christ. You know, something is only worth as much as someone is willing to pay for it. And uh, if you are lucky enough to own a house at the moment, you'll probably see that housing prices have gone up by crazy amounts. And that isn't because the literal worth of your bricks and your, your, your carpet and all that stuff has gone up. If anything, that's probably depreciated. But it's worth heaps because someone is willing at the moment to pay heaps for it. Land is worth heaps because people go, oh, it's not like, oh, dirt's worth nothing. No, dirt's worth a lot in the eyes of the beholder because it's worth what someone is willing to pay for it. And at the moment, that's a lot. And each person, therefore, we can see is worth an infinite amount because Jesus paid for them with his blood on the cross. Jesus' life paid for their life. Jesus' righteousness, his wholeness, his goodness paid for their sin. And so each person, therefore, has this inherent objective value when we look at them, not because of anything that we see that's different about them to us or whatever, but because of Jesus, because of that lens. And so when you see your boss, your colleagues, some random person, whoever it is, family, friends, I understand these can be really difficult relationships sometimes. But remember, these people have been paid for with the highest price. And you know what? They're being paid for with the same price that you've been paid for. We are no different to the difficult people. <laughs> I'm the same as them. Secondly, we don't just look through uh, the God lens or the Jesus lens, but then we actually need to do something about that because you can look at something, see that it's valuable and still go on to dishonour it, right? Intentionally, perhaps. But once we look through the God lens at people, through the Jesus lens and realise, hey, they're being paid for with the highest price, then we need to adopt an attitude of honour. And you know what? You might have heard some weird things about churches that have an honour culture. I don't know if you've ever heard that before, but I've heard a lot about honour culture and sometimes it can be more like honour cult. It can be a bit odd, be a bit strange. Um, in fact, I went to a thing one day. Do you know what I'm going to do? I'll, I'll, I'll just like step this out for you. Josh, would you mind standing up? No, it's not gonna, It's going to be weird, but you don't have to do anything. So if you just stand on stage, I'm not going to do anything to you, I promise. <laughs> this is the horrible boss's sermon. I'm just like, all right. <laughs> no. So literally, if you just stand there. So uh, this is a very simple explanation. I went to a thing. I went to a training thing. A training training thing one day um, in some church setting, and they were like. It was these people from America and they're talking about honour and literally they're like, oh, you know, we really need to have honour in the church, which I agree with, obviously, because I'm preaching on it. But then they're like, but this is the way you do it. And they would go, if someone's standing there, you stand on a lower step and you say, Josh, I just want to honour you because you are amazing. And that's how they said you should honour people. That's weird. Don't ever do that. Was that weird for you? Okay. <laughs> Right, let's give Josh a clap. That's all you need to do. Josh is a, is a fantastic boss, by the way. Just want to honour you. Although you said last week I can't give you compliments anymore, so I don't know what to do anymore. So 
But they would literally do weird stuff like that. They'd be like, you have to like, they'd like program the way you have to honour stuff. And, and it, instead of honour, it was more like just weirdness. It was just odd. And that's not what I mean by adopting an attitude of honour. I'm not expecting you to go, down, go around and, and be kind of crouching down in front of people and saying odd things and being bizarre. I think Christians have enough of that going on without adding that into the mix. Um, so, yeah, we don't need to do that. I've kind of lost my place now, but that's all right. Instead, an honour culture, oh, sorry, an honour attitude, not culture, honour attitude is more about asking the question, how do I usually treat things of value? How do I usually treat things that are worth something, that are worth a lot? Um, we've, we've had a few uh, couples in our young adults group get engaged um, over the last year or so, and one of them's Caroline just here. Caroline, have you got your ring on this morning? You, oh, I thought you didn't there for a minute. I was like, watch out. So Caroline's got probably a relatively expensive engagement ring. I don't know. I haven't asked. Um, she, she did the nervous laugh, so yes, so that's good. Um, and so, you know, if I just went out and, and I could grab Caroline's ring or she gave that to me. Now, that ring isn't worth something to me because it's not mine, it's not Kirsty's, whatever, but I can see that it is something of great value. So I'm probably not going to, you know, start stamping on it throwing it against walls, and even though it might be able to take it, 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 like I could do all this and it might not seem as though it's done anything to that ring, right? It might, it might not, I don't know. It's not about how brittle or strong something is. It's about, is that thing of value? It's of great value, so I'm not going to stamp on it. I'm not going to throw it against walls. I'm not going to dishonour or disrespect it. I'm not going to be like that because it's of great value. And the question I have or, or the, the reflection for myself has been, if I wouldn't do that to a ring, if I wouldn't dishonour a ring, why am I so caught up with like, oh, you know, possessions and things that I'm like, you know, I don't want to, you know, treat that poorly because that's precious or whatever. And yet to a person, I don't think that same way. I don't go around and go like, oh, you know, how have I, I don't really always deeply reflect on how I've actually treated others. I might reflect more on how I've treated an object which has some value compared to how I treat a person that has infinite value. How often do we reflect on this? You wouldn't do it to a ring. Why would you do it to a person? For David, adopting an attitude of honour is why he didn't trash Saul's name up and down the kingdom. He could have. It's why... David didn't try and stir up a coup against Saul and take over because he could. Would have worked. It's why despite his friends saying otherwise, David didn't just kill Saul. Even when his right-hand man, Abishai, says God wants you to kill him, it is actually God's will that you do this. Look, everyone, God's put everyone to sleep. You've been able to walk right into the camp. He's lying right there. His spear is next to his head. What other sign do you need that God wants this to happen? Kill him. David goes, hold on. That's not God's character. That's not, that, God values Saul. Saul has an identity. Saul has a life that is worth something. David says, I can't do something so bad to someone so valuable to my creator. So adopting that attitude of honour to David was, was huge. And I think this is part of what, how we see play out that he was a man after God's own heart. This was in some ways a test for, for later on ascending to the throne. I, I actually believe if he, had a, if he had a struck Saul down, I actually don't think David would have become king. I think something would have happened. 
Now, that, I'm basing that on nothing, but I think that this was a moment. This was a pivotal moment in David's life. What are you, you going to do? When, when, when everything is pointing to God said, destroy this person, what are you going to do? And he reflected on who his creator was and what his creator saw in Saul. For us, adopting that attitude of honour, and I don't want to be too prescriptive about this actually because I think sometimes if I gave you like three keys to honour someone, you might forget about them. Really, it is all about asking the question with difficult people, with, with every person in your life, how do I show that they are valued? How, how are they valued? How, how does my actions, my words, my thoughts, how does that um, communicate value towards that person? You know what? Sometimes communicating value might just be not punching them in the face. If, you re- if in your head you're like, man, it might be removing yourself from a situation. It can be all kinds of things. It doesn't have to be you going up and, again, bowing at their feet or doing anything weird. It's really just how are my actions reflecting God's value for that person? An attitude of honour doesn't mean agreeing with everything they say and do, but it does mean disagreeing without being degrading. An attitude of honour doesn't mean being a doormat to a horrible boss or a horrible person in your life, an abusive person in your life. In fact, what I would say is, no, report them. Report them through official channels. If you have to do that, that's why we have these systems and structures available to us, the official channels. Seek justice. Note that David didn't have that option, right? You do, because David didn't have fair work, okay? You do. David didn't have the police. Saul just said, do this, and and the army would do that, right? David didn't have these options. You do. So fully do those things. Seek justice. But an attitude of honour does mean seeking justice without slandering the person. And I know that's really hard because to us it's very natural. Someone wrongs us, I just want to slander them everywhere. I want everyone else to know that this person sucks and I am vindicated in what I think. You know, I'm the innocent party, they're the guilty party, whatever. And sure, you're going to have a close circle of friends and there's, there's counsellors and all kinds of things you might be able to talk about these things with. It doesn't mean just completely shut up. But can you seek justice without slandering the person? Even if everyone else says, go for it, just trash them. You deserve it. You, deserve, you are totally right in what you're thinking. Just trash that person. They're terrible. You're awesome. No. Could you adopt an attitude of honour? And an attitude of honour finally doesn't mean having to force myself to like people I dislike. But it does mean not treating them with disrespect. I don't have to like everyone. You don't have to like me. That's all right. But let's not disrespect one another simply because of that dislike. There's nothing in the Bible saying you must like everyone. Did you know that? Which is really good. Um, Because there's going to be people we just naturally struggle with, and that's okay because we're human. But God does seek for us to honour, attribute value, to everyone. So I'm just going to invite the band to come and as I close, I just want us to remember that Saul was this truly horrible boss to David. The most difficult, horrible, difficult, awful, difficult, difficult person. But despite the circumstance, David chose to see Saul through a God lens. As followers of God, we're called to do the same. You and me, we are called to do the same as what David did with all people, not just with the difficult ones, but Peter says, honour everyone. We do this by viewing people as paid for by the sacrifice of Jesus. The fact that they've been paid for at a high price, the same high price that was paid for you and for me. And from there, we adopt an attitude of honour. David demonstrated this by not 
killing Saul, by not trashing Saul all around the kingdom and all around the countryside, by not stirring up trouble against Saul. We do this by asking, how can I practically value people? What does it look like in this difficult relationship or in this circumstance or with everyone to actually attribute value to them, to treat them as though they are valued? What does it look like in my words? What does it look like in my thoughts? What does it look like in my actions to communicate value and acting accordingly? This morning, uh, just as the the band's setting up, um, I... Uh, was thinking about what I'd, what I'd kind of like to do at the end of this message and there is a song that had been in my head through the week and that was a song called King of My Heart. Does anyone know King of My Heart? Um, and it really talks about God being the safety point to which we run, the fact that no matter what the circumstance is, that He is good and that He is never going to, and kind of declaring that He is not going to let us down. In those difficult relationships, in circumstances in general, whatever it is, whatever the circumstance, whatever the situation, that God is good and that He's not going to let us down. And and this kind of came into my mind because as I was reflecting on Saul's struggle with, uh, sorry, David's struggle with Saul, there's a Psalm, Psalm 59, which David writes just after Saul has tried to kill him for like the, I don't know, the 20th time or something. And he's now having to go on the run. And at the end of this Psalm, David writes, God, you are my strength. I sing praise to You. You, God, are my fortress, my God on whom I can rely. And that stuck out to me because I'm going, if David, in his circumstance where there doesn't seem to be a lot of goodness of God around him and there doesn't seem to be a lot of answers coming and he's actually fleeing, as I said, he's lost his income, he's lost his safety, he's lost his friendships, all kinds of things. If he can still say, God, I can rely on You, then how much more can we? How much more can we kind of declare this into our situations and go, God, this morning, no matter what relationship I'm struggling with, no matter what circumstance I'm battling against, I wanna lift up to You my praise and declare that You are gonna be the place that I run to. You are the safe haven for me. You are good even when I don't see goodness and You are not gonna let me down even when I can't see what You are doing. I'm gonna honour You, God. I'm gonna bless You, God. I'm gonna worship You, God. Can we do that together this morning? just as a practical application to this. And if during this time, there's people that come to your mind, difficult people, right? The only you might know about, the people that you struggle with, if you just wanna give that over to God and say, God, can you just help me out? I don't wanna have bad attitudes towards these people. I wanna have an attitude of honour. Help me to see them through your lens, not through my human eyes. You are good God and you won't let me down. Thanks for listening to this message from Port Life Church. If you have any questions, please email info at portlife.org.au. Have a great day.